Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. Today is Tuesday, December 7th. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today, my good friend Mitchell Schwartz. Mitch, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing pretty good. How are we doing today? Doing all right. Doing all right. Uh, a lot of stuff to get to today because it's kind of a jam-packed Sunday night show with Nate last night when we were recording. And I think that there's a lot of stuff that we didn't get to and wanted to. And man, people came through. Everything I would have wanted to hit, there were questions about it. So it feels like this is going to be a great little extension of the conversation we had last night. And with that, let's get to our first voicemail. Hey, Robert and Mitch. I'm Daniel from Charlotte. Um Unfortunately for me, I'm a Panthers fan, so I was curious to hear what you guys thought about uh, the Joe Brady firing. Um, it seems like there's a discourse between the national media and the local media. He's a very like creative play caller, and that's not something we've seen a lot in Carolina. Um, and it's hard to succeed with this offensive line and quarterback situation over the last couple of years. But I also thought his situational and red zone play calling left a lot to be desired. So I was curious to hear your thoughts on it. Matt Rule has also just kind of made a scapegoat out of a lot of guys. Like last year, Teddy Bridgewater. This year, Brady. I'm not really sure what direction this team is going. (laughs) Uh, Good luck. All right. Lots to chew on here. So... I got it was funny we were before before the game started yesterday or I guess after the game started happened at like 12 30 p.m. the news came down about Joe Brady getting fired and I was surprised I was very surprised what was your first reaction when you heard the news yesterday yeah also surprised and the timing of it as well you know you usually don't do that like halfway into a buy when you've already gone through the first (laughs) week like I guess you know it seems like they kind of got to an impasse I know there was a tweet or two about uh, how much they wanted to run the ball and, you know, making sure that the balance was, you know, quote unquote, uh, or making sure the offense was quote unquote balanced for, you know, what rule wanted in terms of runs and passes. But yeah, it's odd that like it took a week to kind of get to that conclusion because it usually just doesn't work out that way. You know, if you kind of know that, Hey, we're leaning towards wanting to make a change, you make it when the buy first starts and you, you know, kind of let the, the next guys in line, uh, assume that role for that week and then, you know, into the actual game plan week. So timing, very strange, very odd. Uh, like you said, not super surprising. It happened right at the beginning of an, uh, NFL slate. So it kind of got, uh, swept under the rug a little bit. But yeah, to the caller's point, you know, it does seem like a little bit of scapegoating. And I think there 
are a lot bigger issues in terms of what's wrong with you know the quarterback position there it's you know they've just gotten the wrong guys and that's you know more of a front office thing and i don't know how much power rule has but you know they took on teddy and then they traded for darnold and guaranteed the fifth year without really seeing anything or you know having a reason to do it and so there's that interesting breakdown of like they're on the hook for like 40 plus million in quarterback salaries over these couple years and like you know denver's paying like two million dollars to have bridgewater as the quarterback and <laughs> you know the, the jets got you know second rounder out of it or whatever it was and yeah it just seems much more like bag organizational you know um process than it does you know offensive coordinator who isn't necessarily calling the right plays or not maximizing the qb and so that's where it gets a little bit tricky and you know as we've talked about it's hard to you know parse things out but it does seem like that's kind of the root of it more than the true like x's and o's i totally agree and and if you look at it i mean this is a team that finished 17th in offensive dvoa last season there's a reason that joe brady's star was rising obviously the year he had at lsu and then what they did with Teddy Bridgewater last year. I mean, this was an interesting offense. You know, they had guys that were producing at career high levels with Robbie Anderson and DJ Moore. They lost Chris McCaffrey for most of the year last year, and they were still a reasonable offense. Their offensive line had tons of question marks. And then you walk into this year and they move on from Teddy Bridgewater. They go trade for Sam Darnold. They bypass a quarterback in the top 10. They do really nothing to upgrade their offensive line in a substantive way. You sign Cam Irving and Pat Elfline. It's like, yeah. Imagine if they drafted Slater. You know, yeah. Some whatever. Yeah. There's so many different ways you could have gone with that. They went and got a corner, and I can understand thinking a really top tier corner is a scarce resource. That's fine, but the moves they've made on offense, it just feels like a shell game at this point. It's all moving around, and they, they can't even keep track of why they're doing some of the things that they're doing. And I feel like if you look at the offensive line and the state of it, even beyond the quarterback play over the last couple of weeks. When Dennis Daly is your left tackle against the Dolphins, there's really no nothing you can do about that. I mean, the, the, the performance their offensive line put on against Miami two weeks ago, that's as, about, about as bad as an offensive line can play in an NFL game. So to put that on your offensive coordinator, even if you didn't like the mixture of runs and passes, it just feels like we're missing the point here. So now, over the span of, I don't know, it's it's December, right? So March to December is about nine months. So in 21 months, they've moved on from Cam Newton, signed Teddy Bridgewater, moved on from Teddy Bridgewater, signed, traded for Sam Darnold, signed Cam Newton, and fired their offensive coordinator. That doesn't seem like a really good recipe for Not sustained great. success. <laughs> and it, that's what it seemed like with this team for a while. We've talked about it in relation to the quarterback position, but the moving target and the constant just upheaval and yeah, all the, and also, just everything so about it. It came on quick because the first like three or four weeks, everyone was like, oh, see, Darnold's better. It's the you know, yes. Gase thing. And he got rid of Gase. And he was like leading the NFL in touchdown rushes after like three or four weeks. I think he had five or something. <laughs> and we're like, oh, yeah, see, he got unlocked. And they're running, you know, a little bit more quarterback friendly stuff. And he's able to keep the ball and run it in. And he's looking good and completing passes. So it's not even that they went into the season and we're thinking like, oh, we're not quite sure about our O.C., you know, they started out well the first, you know, three or four weeks. And so this is like a one and a half month thing that it seems like it just all of a sudden snowballed. And now it's just like, well, we got to get rid of this guy. And I don't know that anyone was necessarily like blaming the team for schematics. I think they blame the team for like bringing in the wrong guys. And I guess you could then say like, well, it's the X's and O's that, you know, haven't led them to have that success. But it just didn't seem like, 
there was any semblance of that guy or that position being questioned. And so that's what made it as surprising as <laughs> the time that they dropped the announcement. And so just a kind of a strange firing in general. And then, you know, those other factors involved just makes it even that much wilder. I'll say this, nothing that has happened over the last six months to a year has given me any more faith in the Matt Rule era in Carolina. I feel like the trust and faith I might have in that regime has been slowly eroding over time, and I'm not sure it's going to be headed in the other direction anytime soon. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, his star was definitely rising for a while there, and it seems like it's uh, fading a little bit. And, you know, to me, he's always going to be, I think, compared a little bit to the New York jobs because, you know, he had potentially uh, was able to take those, but they weren't able to you know, give him the power that he wanted and might turn out to be, you know, kind of correct on their part. So we'll see how that uh, shakes out. And to the caller's point, you know, there's always someone else to blame. So you can, yeah. uh, you can say he's running out of people to blame, but, you know, then it's the GM and then it's the next offensive coordinator and then it's the quarterback and then it's the GM again. And then, uh, you know, as we've seen, some of these coaches are pretty adept at shifting all, any and all blame. So that is a never ending cycle. Well, we'll see what happens next, who the next scapegoat's going to be. All right, let's get to our next voicemail. Hi, this is Andrew from Baltimore. The ending of the Ravens-Steelers game was absolutely brutal. Do you like the Ravens' decision to go for the two-point conversion and win the game in regulation? In general, do you like going for it in that situation, or do you like kicking the PAT to send it for overtime? Thank you. We didn't touch on this much uh, on the Sunday night show with Nate, just because most of my energy that I directed toward the Ravens was pure disappointment and what the Ravens looked like against that Steelers team. So I want to dig into this a little bit. How do you feel about the decision to go for two in order to win the game at the end when you have that opportunity? Yeah, I like it in that spot, especially. I mean, Harbaugh has subsequently said that his rationale is like, you know, we didn't have any corners. I, we didn't really have the bodies yeah. to, you know, be successful in overtime. You know, on the whole, you'd probably say, well, Baltimore should be the better team. They've kind of uh, looked better throughout the course of the year. And, you know, Pittsburgh hasn't looked quite as good. So theoretically, they're the better team. They had the better kicker. Obviously, they got the better kicker on any team that's really ever played football. Um, <laughs> so they have, you know, that uh, advantage going into overtime. And the flip side is like the coach knows his personnel. He understands like, hey, we don't have it. Obviously, it is literally a coin flip. And so if Pittsburgh gets the ball, you know, our personnel is uh, pretty short sighted. And then, you know, as the game has gone on, you lose your best corner and you lose a couple other guys. You know, they really just don't have the personnel. So I, I, I like that decision. Just try to end it. I mean, they had the right play. The guy was open. They just maybe yeah. don't leave TJ Watt unattended and force your quarterback to throw around him. Um, but the play worked. I mean, the guy was open. Um, it is a little bit funny in those situations, too, because, you know, people talk about Harbaugh and the analytics and going for it on fourth downs. And they're saying, oh, well, yeah, he trusts the numbers and this and that. And it come to find out it's just like no it's kind of a gut thing and i just felt like we didn't have the right guys to go into overtime and you know he said it wasn't necessarily an analytic uh decision so it's always funny that you know some of that crowd likes to you know uh glom onto any uh any and all opportunity to toot their own horn um but the other side does as well so i'm not like you know bashing analytics guys it's just funny that like <laughs> there are evils on both sides of that <laughs> yeah yeah of course so like in that instance, it's funny that like, you know, the side is always going to be like, oh, yeah, see, like this is uh, this is us. And it turns out like it was for the complete opposite rationale. So I'm all for it. Um, you know, we've seen 
again, the clip of, hey, Lamar, do you want to go for it? And like certain things like that, where he does kind of leave it up to his team a little bit more and uh, he trusts them. So it's uh, it's cool to see a coach that has, you know, faith in his guys and also an understanding of kind of the general roster construction and, you know, what his team is really up against in, in you know, an overtime situation like that. I mean, if you look at it, right, I mean, their season has been so strange. You know, they had that win over the Chiefs early when the Chiefs were not the team we're watching right now, especially on defense. I mean, they win that miracle game against the Colts that they probably should have lost. Then they crush the Chargers, which seems like sort of an outlier at this point based on what those two teams are. They get beat up by the Bengals, and then they have that ugly, ugly game against the Dolphins, and then two ugly games in a row against the Browns and the Steelers. And I feel like we looked at this team early in the season as they kept rattling off these wins and thinking, God, man, Lamar has just been so valuable what they're doing and they've kind of overcome all of these injuries. But at a certain point, it starts to take its toll, right? When you have offensive tackle issues and moving parts, when you're running out of cornerbacks, when you still, and we'll get to this, don't have total faith in the way your offense is structured, at a certain point, there's no shame in not being able to overcome that stuff. And it just feels like this Ravens team is just too beat up to really do much this year. And now losing Marlon Humphrey, it's like, all right, that's kind of where we are. Like, fought the good fight. Who knows what the offseason may look like if we want to take a step back and think about the offense and just the way our plan is and what it looks like. But right now, it just feels like the battle is way too uphill for them. Right. So last week we talked about, you know, kind of positional value and aside from quarterback, you know, what positions are the hardest to find elite guys at. And we kind of, you know, went towards offensive tackle and corner. And so this is a team that doesn't have <laughs> exactly. their left tackle and their top two corners. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you take any team's, you know, best offensive uh, linemen, especially the left tackle and their best two corners. And it's going to be very difficult to play successfully for a whole season, you know, let alone the rash of other injuries they've had. So, yeah, there, there's no shame in like you get so many guys injured, you just don't have the same quality of players. Like you talk about depth all you want, but depth is, you know, guys 54 through, you know, 60 on the roster. It's not necessarily guys 60 through 75. So, uh, it is taking its toll and, you know, you're seeing it now. I think the, the weirdest part obviously is, you know, the past few games from Lamar, you know, the Miami game was a bit of a different situation in terms of all the cover zero stuff and, that specific scheme we've seen confuse quarterbacks uh, for a very long time. Obviously, it's it's roots in the Belichick uh, system and understanding how to you know play with quarterbacks' minds. And these last two weeks, I mean, that's just been weird. Four picks last week. You know, obviously they won this week. I think it was either the first or second drive. He had that really odd interception in the end zone where he threw it up you know late and no one was open. And it was just like, man, that's a really strange decision. Like you don't see that from uh, Lamar you know, almost ever. So something's definitely a little bit different there. And it could be, you know, similar to the Chiefs earlier in the year where you get enough guys kind of out of place and, you know, things aren't going as well as you'd like them to. And you start pressing a little bit and you try to force the issue. So it's tough when, you know, the reinforcements aren't necessarily coming. You know, a lot of these other teams, guys are getting hurt and it's, you know, two to eight week injuries. And hey, he'll be back at the end of the season. You know, Derek Henry could be back in a in a few weeks at the end of the year. JJ Watt posts cryptic stuff every now and again of, you know, he might be coming back. And so you see stuff like that and it's just like for them, no, like all these guys are out for the year. Uh, the reinforcements aren't coming. 
yeah, multiple running backs, an offensive tackle, multiple cornerbacks. And again, it all just starts to add up. I think there is one more thing that we should talk about with the Ravens, and our next voicemail is going to kick that up. Hey, Robert. It's the depressed Ravens fan. I've never been on the fire Greg Roman bandwagon, but after this game and the constant first down runs that go for the loss, go for a loss, and just not giving Bateman the ball ever. I mean, he wasn't even on the field on the final play. Just the struggles with the offense. What what should happen? I know Lamar needs to get rid of the ball. I know he needs to stop forcing Andrews, but I kind of think that Roman might be a problem. He helped support Lamar through the first few years, but I think he might have to kind of take the training mills off or something. I don't know. Bye. <laughs> I want to ask you this. I, I'm curious just from somebody who – has played on teams that are in the AFC playoff race, has watched the Ravens, you know, with some proximity for a while here and seen what they've looked like under Lamar Jackson. How do you feel about their approach on offense and what the eventual limitations of it might be under Greg Roman? Well, I was always scared shitless of them because it's a team that can control the ball. They can do it in all facets. Obviously we kind of talked about the analytics stuff earlier. Like they're not afraid to use all four downs and to, you know, on third and five, you know, run a play and get to fourth and two and then have a high percentage play there. And so you went into that game as the Chiefs offense, knowing like, hey, we're gonna have to put up a bunch of points. Like this is a really good offense. You know, our possessions might be limited because they are more of a ball control uh, system. And so had a lot of respect for him. You know, obviously the Lamar playoff, like coming from behind thing was what was dragging over his head until this year. And then this year he has like three or four you know 10 plus point comebacks in the fourth quarter at some point maybe halfway through the year baltimore was like top three in neutral down pass rate and so people were like hey see so they are you know a totally different offense and they're throwing the ball more and lamar's accurate and it looks great and so i think if anything roman might need to go back to what he was doing and maybe they you know push the boundary a little too far in terms of the the, thr- the throwing attack but again three weeks ago lamar was like the a front runner for MVP. So it's hard to like, we do these things every week and obviously you talk about it, but like stuff changes so fast and it's crazy. Like how quickly some of the perceptions can change because, you know, 10 weeks into the season, the Ravens offense on the whole look great, totally different schematically, um, you know, as versatile as ever because they still have all the power scheme stuff and they still have, you know, the heavy personnel and extra alignment, but they're also doing a little bit more of the spread and the true passing game that we wanted to see from them. And it just hasn't worked for the last three weeks. So it is a little bit reactionary to, you know, kind of go off of that and say, oh, well, the, the OC has lost it and he doesn't quite know how to call plays and stuff. But because, you know, guys are hurt and because they're struggling, you know, I wonder if this is a time you just say, OK, we're going to kind of shift back to running the ball, that being the emphasis kind of those really high percentage play actions where they're you know got eight guys blocking but the two guys running routes are very very fast and they have the speed to you know stretch the field and open up these voids um because that was always like the thing me watching that offense thinking like oh man this is pretty awesome for the offensive line like everyone (laughs) playing against them all you do is like get ready for double teams and you know gap blocking schemes and like really physical run plays and so you're bearing down on that and then all of a sudden they're doing these play actions and it's like there are play actions that are easy for offensive linemen and there are play actions that are difficult for offensive linemen like those were easy for offensive linemen because the defense is playing a specific way you know as a defensive end you're taught like don't go past a certain point or don't go inside because lamar is going to break contain so like you can't do that anyway and so they're getting these like really 
high percentage plays and easier plays on on the offense and so I do think maybe they start to shift back towards that a little bit obviously it seems like Lamar is pressing a little bit and something's off in the passing game um, so whatever they can do to kind of find that magic and you know once they get back to like kind of their baseline I think they'll start to you know mix in a little bit more of the past stuff that we saw uh, from such a high volume earlier in the year this just feels like a let's insulate ourselves here for the last month and a half of the season let's get to the end of the year and let's figure it out. I mean, I know they're probably going to make the playoffs, but it, I think from a big picture decision-making standpoint, let's not overreact to what's happening here. There's so many guys out. There's so many different things that, like you said, just pressing and just trying to overcome whatever deficiencies they have right now. I think it's hard to judge them. It's hard to get a proper read on what's actually wrong, what could be wrong moving forward. I think coming at any sweeping conclusions based on what they look like right now is dangerous. I mean, not only are you pressing because you're losing guys on offense, your your running game doesn't look like it used to, your offensive line is dinged up, you're pressing because you know you have to score a bunch of points. Your defense can't really stop anybody at this point. I know yesterday the Steelers couldn't move the ball. The Steelers can never move the ball. So I, I just think that there's so many different things to take into account here, and I think you're exactly right. You don't want to overreact to what's happening right now just because I think we give them the benefit of the doubt so often because we've seen them overcome that. And early in the year was a perfect example, right? They just keep rattling off these wins. It's like, all right, man, I guess the Ravens. But when it comes down to it, they just don't have the guys right now. And I think it's really difficult to make any sweeping conclusions, again, about an offensive coordinator when you're so concerned about what the personnel looks like. Yeah, and they've shown they can win like the muddy games and they can have these comebacks and it doesn't have to be clean. And so, you know, as you're saying, I think we kind of trust, again, the infrastructure and the team and the coaching and the quarterback. And if things kind of get messy, like Lamar is as dynamic a, a guy as we've seen in that position. So he can make plays, you know, with his arm and his legs. And so I think it'll kind of bear itself out. This, I mean, we talk about it every week. The AFC is just crazy right now. Like there's five teams at like eight and four that are all tied for first place. Um, it just, not one team is separating themselves and i don't think they necessarily have to i think that'll make for a very compelling playoffs when we get there because i don't know in these next five weeks that like a team is really gonna ascend and even if they do you know there's the six other teams that are all kind of in the same situation so i think it'll be you know a really interesting uh finish of the season and you know obviously we're all kind of waiting for baltimore's offense to get back on track and you know we'll see if they can do it in time for this playoff push uh, for me, I, they absolutely could, right? And Lamar being as dynamic as he is, when you're in a game where there is no true, truly better team, you know, and you look at the AFC in general, there isn't any truly great team. And it feels like Baltimore could be in any of these games. But I think when it comes to big conclusions and big decisions, let's understand that when this team gets to the offseason, they're going to be looking at a world where they get Ronnie Stanley back next year, Rashad Bateman's healthy the entire season, J.K. Dobbins and Gus Edwards are back. They can do some tweaking along that offensive line if they want to. Hopefully, they'll get Marcus Peters back. I mean, it's just all of these things where the 2022 Ravens, I think, are going to look just fine, even if Greg Roman is the offensive coordinator, no matter what happens over the final six weeks of this year. Yeah, and he's one of the guys that has shown like he can run this kind of system and basically mold it around the personnel and the quarterbacks in a way that you know not many other coordinators have shown obviously there's a lot of stuff in college where, where guys have done that but in terms of the nfl having you know this specific of an offense um 
you know, he's one of those few guys who's done it. You know, he did it here. Uh, he did it in, you know, San Francisco. And so, uh, I think they do have, you know, the right people leading the way in terms of him and, and Harbaugh. And obviously the quarterback's going to stay there. And I'd imagine, you know, he'll get that extension in the offseason. So we will, uh, you know, definitely see what it looks like coming out. You know, as you were rattling off those names, I was just, you know, thinking of sarcastic little quips, but like, yeah, it'll help to have all those guys back. <laughs> like <laughs> yes. all their best players are coming back. That's going to be nice. Yeah, I mean, even the Bateman thing. I mean, it, I understand that he's a first-round pick. You want him totally incorporated into the offense. I mean, you know this. If you're a rookie and you miss the first half of your rookie season, it's really hard to understand how to properly use that guy, how to fold him into what you're doing, how to have him be completely comfortable with everything that you're doing. I mean, that is a huge learning gap to miss that exact stretch of time that he did, no matter what deficiencies you have on offense. Right. And especially in offense like that, which does utilize motion and different formations and personnel groupings and shifts and all that stuff. Like that's probably the toughest thing for the receiver group, you know, especially as a rookie is knowing, okay, well now it's, you know, 21 personnel on this guy. It's 12 personnel on this guy. It's 13 on this guy. And like figuring out which guy you are, where you're supposed to be, what the shift is, what the motion is, because, you know, you can have 18 different variations of trips formations and there's like one differentiator whether it's a tag or whether it's a slight version in like trips or tray or troy or all these things and now you know you're supposed to be two yards off the hash on one and the other you're you know two yards in from the numbers and the other you're splitting the alley and there's so many of these little things that go into before you can run the route figuring out where you're supposed to be <laughs> what the timing is what the guys around you are doing and then it's like okay i got to run the route and now it's cover three. Oh no it's man coverage oh it's cover two and i'm supposed to do this instead so yeah those guys have a lot to process and you know some guys have the ability to take all that in and just go out on the field and it's natural but for the most part most people playing football you know you need to get those reps to walk through it to practice it to go full speed with your quarterback so he can understand how you move where you're going to be you know get that uh, chemistry and that confidence going looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, let's get to our first email here. Robert Coomer asks, my question is, what makes a run game creative? I like this because we say that all the time. So let's actually dig into this a little bit. He said, I'm currently watching the Cowboys Saints game. Besides the stupid power run, the Saints completely shut down the Dallas run game. In contrast, the Eagles ran all over the Saints a couple weeks ago. It looks to me like the Eagles run game has a lot more lateral movement and pulls a lot more players. My lot on Kelsey are outstanding on the move, whereas Dallas's run game is much more vertical. Is that it? What am I missing? His question kind of cutting down to it is, what makes a run game creative? And when we talk about a team like the Niners, and people say they have the league's most creative run game, what does that actually mean? What does make a creative running game? 
I mean, when you boil it down, it's the run game that's the most successful. <laughs> like if it's successful, we just say, oh yeah, it's really creative. They're doing all this cool stuff. And like, you know, it can be all the, the same stuff everyone else is doing. But I think, I think when people say creative offense and creative run game, especially it's, you're doing all the same stuff. You know, there's inside zone, there's outside zone, there's gap schemes and there's man schemes. Like, it gets down to it it's that simple now there's a tons of there's a ton of variations of all those things and so it's finding a way to do those in a manner that's a little bit different than everyone else you know everyone can run inside zone with two tight ends and inside zone from shotgun and you know power with a fullback and single back power you know the the broncos ran that with a lot of success against the chiefs the other night um but finding a way to either disguise it or to motion to it or to know what coverage it's going to be. So maybe they're playing a certain coverage where you're able to, you know, box the safety out with the receiver. But I think it's like understanding kind of the all 11 on offense and how they piece together. And there is the element of, you know, pulling guys and, you know, running things that are a little bit, you know, less common. And so you've seen, you know, Frank Reich, we talked about like the Wham schemes and, you know, when Philly does that a little bit. And so when you see that, it's like, oh, that's cool. Like you don't see that very often. Or, you know, you see the Eagles are doing a lot right now with Mylotta and Lane of, you know, plays with tackles pulling and not just, you know, toss plays where they're on the front side and pulling into open space. You know, everyone has those. Well, they're doing like the more power oriented gap schemes where they're pulling backside and, you know, they're used as lead blockers where typically a guard would. So that's a cool wrinkle. Um, you know, Shanahan's doing all the same plays, you know, he's been running for his whole life, but now he's doing them with, you know, juice check on, on, on the run in motion. And now he gets to, you know, run full speed and light up the guy Kittle's blocking and then continue the safety where before, you know, that was a fullback or that was, you know, two tight ends right next to each other. Now it's happening, you know, on the fly and in full speed in motion, like I said. So there's elements of like finding a new creative way to do all the stuff that everyone else is doing. And, you know, obviously, again, it has to be successful because if teams are you know doing all these shifts and motions and all these other things and the run game sucks, you're just like, man, this guy's overcomplicating things. He needs to, you know, just simplify <laughs> it and go back to basics. And so there's the element of like it has to work, um, but it is doing stuff that, you know, you don't necessarily see and you know, a lot of the times it goes with pullers because for the most part, if guys aren't pulling, like for the casual fan, it kind of all looks similar, you know, inside zone, outside zone, stuff like that. Like it's just a wall of humanity moving and the running back kind of feels it out and, and finds his way. And so seeing, you know, a center and a tackle pull into space or, you know, a guard and a backside guard pull into space, it's like, oh, that doesn't look normal. That looks cool. Um, or a guy coming in motion and being part of the blocking scheme, like those types of things, I think we think of as, you know, creativity because it's not, you know, static standard formations and just like uh, said hike and, you know, letting, letting the offense roll from there. To me, it feels like how creative are you in finding angles for your guys, right? And I think that you can do that in a few different ways. Like the Niners with the way they use Juchek now, having him get out on the perimeter and creating angles that way, that's new, right? Like they, they're the way they attack the perimeter with some of their runs and how he's going in motion now is not just a two-back set as a regular fullback. That's a little bit creative. The Eagles, not only do they pull their tackles, they pull their center in a way a lot of other teams don't because of how well Jason Kelsey moves. And the other thing about the Eagles is, I mean, if you look at the Eagles run game compared to the Cowboys run game, the Cowboys are in 12 personnel all the time. I mean, they love playing with two tight ends. So even if they're only they're a one back offense, they, or they're in heavy personnel a decent amount of the time. The Eagles not only are running into lighter personnel with three receivers on the field, they also have an extra gap for their quarterback. So they're spreading things out and they have an extra player so they can leave defensive ends unblocked constantly. 
Like the Eagles run game is not only successful because of the different guys they can have on the move, their numbers advantage is more substantial than pretty much every other team in the league. Because while the Ravens have Lamar, the Ravens are in heavy personnel every single play. So that part is also, I don't know if you'd call that creative. I think that's just unique when you compare Philadelphia's running game to the other running games that we see in the NFL right now. Yeah, I think, you know, what you said about angles and creating angles, you know, for the most part, when, you know, coordinators are figuring out what runs to to run that week, the running back gets to someone one-on-one if everything's blocked correctly. So perfectly blocked play, you know, for the most part, it's uh, 10 offensive guys on 11 defenders. And so there's one extra guy. So the running back gets through and, you know, he has to beat that guy. Typically it's a safety. You know, if you can, you try to scheme it up. So a receiver, you know, comes in the box and blocks the safety and then it leaves the corner. You know, typically the corner is you know, theoretically the worst tackler on the team. So you'd like the one-on-one guy to be the corner. And so scheming that up where, you know, the running back can get to that guy in in space to be able to make a miss and you know hit a home run. That's part of it. And then as you said, the angles to make the offensive line jobs easier because you know if I'm the right tackle and I have to double team with the guard, you know, up to the linebacker and say you know we're running to the right, so the play is going outside my right shoulder. Well, if the linebacker I'm going to is already to my right, outside my right shoulder, you know, he's faster than me. Uh, you know, I can run <laughs> as fast as I want, and you know, I'm not Trent Williams, so I can't really get there. But if the coordinator is able to figure out a way to scheme it up so that on that particular formation, my assignment and the linebacker is now you know in the A gap, even on the inside of the guard I'm double teaming. Well, now we have an angle so we can really hammer down on that defensive tackle, you know, block him together up to the linebacker. We have time to do that. No one's like panicked. You're not worried about it. And you're able to get up to him in a proper uh, fashion. And so I think that's why having guys in motion, you know, as we talked about, like coming across the formation, becoming part of the blocking scheme is becoming, you know, more in vogue because especially for teams that, you know, run zones, well, guys will be overshifted to the opposite side where the motion guy is. And so if you're snapping him, you know, again, say the same run where you're running to the right and your fullback is actually like in the slot to the left and at the snap, he's behind the left tackle, you know, the defense hasn't fully adjusted and moved to the opposite side of the formation because he's ending up you know, over the tight end, essentially. Um, so I know we're getting a little, you know, technical here, but, you know, building in, you know, angles in that manner is creative. And uh, if you're able to do that, you give your guys a better chance for success. And then again, that success then makes people think you're creative as well. So it's kind of this cool cycle. And, um, you know, guys are really pushing the boundaries because as you said, like, there are the teams that, you know, focus on the heavy stuff and they have to find a, a way to pop a guy free somehow. Typically, it's just like, well, go out, muscle him and, you know, we'll, we'll make sure we'll pull a guy around and you know, try to trap someone out. There's the teams who are facing all the cover two stuff in the light boxes and figuring out how to, you know, kind of utilize their advantage and numbers to their advantage. And it does seem like Philly is doing the best job of doing that, having a quarterback that can run and then also mixing in pullers and different um, schemes and, you know, kind of personal packages to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you look at the Niners, like there's a reason we talk about them when we have this conversation all the time. All of those motions that they're doing, they're not just doing them to do it. <laughs> I mean, they're doing them to create angles for guys. It's to move people on defense. Or if the people on defense are going to stay static while your guys move, then that's creating angles for you. So, I mean, that they do the best job of it. And I think that that's why we spend so much time talking about it is because the Niners don't have the Eagles offensive line, right? Like Trent Williams is yeah, a great player. Yeah, that's the thing with the Niners is their O-line is 
not that great in, in general, especially with like McGlinchey hurt. And so this isn't like as good of an offensive line as Kyle's had. And so the fact that they're able to, you know, do what they've been doing has been impressive. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Eagles, for as much as they're creating advantages for their guys, Mylotta and Lane are monsters in the run game right yeah. now. <laughs> I know they don't have Brooks, but they do have several really good players. And Len Dickerson's a rookie, but he's very big and physical. I mean, they have guys there. So I think that's kind of another advantage that they've kind of created for themselves, not on accident. All right, let's get to our next one here from Vaughn Allen. He said, you mentioned Jordan Hicks in the podcast today. Not only did the team want to trade him, he's talking about the Cardinals. He then was asked to take a pay cut to not be let go. He gives a couple other examples, Robert Alford, Marcus Golden, guys that have maybe taken a little bit less money to come to Arizona or stay there. He said, my question is for Mitch. From the outside, having players that are willing to do those things seems like it suggests a good organization. But how does it affect other players in their locker room? Does it really have an impact? Do players want to live up to that example? Are those guys respected for those decisions or are they looked down upon? Does it matter at all or does it matter if a team's winning? That's all that counts. I'm curious about this. When guys take less money or when guys seem to make those sacrifices that maybe people in the media laud, how does it typically go over in the locker room? I mean, typically you're kind of bummed that they had to take a pay cut. And so you're like, oh man, like it sucks that, you know, he was supposed to make, you know, two million and now the team's forcing him to take a million and a half or whatever the numbers are. You as a player, you know, want to make the most that you can individually. And you also want your, you know, friends and teammates to make as much as you can. So there's the element of like when you first see pay cuts, it's like, oh, that sucks for him. Like, you know, he's not going to get paid as much and he's going to have to do, you know, the same job. Um, but that's kind of like a one-time thing and, you know, that transaction happens and you kind of think about it and process it. And then you, know, you don't really think about it the rest of the year. You know, in a situation like that, if the guy, you know, took a pay cut, now he's playing a lot and, you know, becomes a, one of the focal guys on, you know, the defense or the offense. And, you know, now he's making $2 million and he should have been making $6 million and, you know, his role is different. You know, you're kind of like, oh, well, I hope, you know, he can go back and, you know, negotiate and be like, hey, I actually overperform what you expected. Like, can, you know, I get a bonus or something? You know, teams typically <laughs> don't <laughs> work in that way. It's like, yeah, we'll give you a bonus and then we'll add two extra years on so you can never hit free agency. Um, so it, it always kind of works out in, in the team's favor because in that instance, you know, for the most part, they have the leverage. And so they come to you and say, hey, we're going to cut you if you don't take a pay cut. You get offered, you know, say the, you know, six to $2 million situation, they can cut you. They don't owe you anything. They say, Hey, we'll pay you 2 million with incentives to take it up to 4 million. And you there, you then have to sit there as a player thinking like, okay, if they cut me, is anyone going to pay me at least $2 million to make it, you know, worth it to not take the pay cut? Do I want to move? Do I want to change teams? Is it, you know, going to be good for my family to, you know, move cities? My kids are in the school district, you know, all these things. So it, sounds good that like yeah guys will we're willing to take the pay cut for the benefit of the team you know sometimes it is truly for the benefit of the team it does seem like in this situation he's a great guy and he's a leader and you know he wanted to stick around and, and be with his guys you know, sometimes it is just a business decision and you realize like this is still the best chance for me to make as much money as possible um but the guys who take in a stride and do it right and you know aren't bitter and they're not you know bad guys in the locker room they do get more respect because you know you like to see guys who, you know, respond to, you know, adverse situations and, um, you know, put their best foot forward. You definitely know when, 
you know certain players are you know wanting a contract or they think they're outperformed and you know all they do is mutter about oh i'm so underpaid or oh no they're only paying me this much and you know blah 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 so guys kind of like chatter about their you know contract situations and about other guys situations so you're kind of aware of what guys get paid and if people are you know mostly very uh, underperforming their salaries that gets talked about a little bit more but in the situations where a guy you know takes a pay cut and then overperforms there have been times where you know you go up to the guy you're like you know hey is your agent talking to them to try to get a bonus or whatever so all those things kind of exist and uh, it's definitely good on the whole for the team to have you know a guy who takes the cut and is there and is a leader successful you know shows the guys what it's like to be a true pro and you know hopefully gets rewarded for it in the back end are there guys that you played with that you watched do that and they garnered respect for because of it? Oh yeah, for sure. And you know, like last year, Mike Remmers, I mean, he signed to be a backup, you know, I get hurt in week six, he plays the rest of the season and it's like, all right, well, you know, he's been the starting right tackle for 10 weeks. Like it would, you know, be cool if he was able to get rewarded for that. You know, I don't remember what his, you know, payers incentive structure was, but like, you know, that's a situation where it's like, oh, that would be nice to, you know, get rewarded for, you know, playing more than the team expected and playing at a, at a high level. You know, I think Anthony Sherman took a pay cut either last year or the last couple of years. And, you know, it's a position that, you know, he didn't play too many fullback snaps. So he was kind of more of a special teamer, but, you know, everyone liked him and, you know, he was a good guy in the locker room. And so in those situations, it's like, ah, it sucks that, you know, he had to take a pay cut, but he wasn't there like bitching about it or, you know, complaining. And so, uh, you know, he handled it the right way and just like, yeah, you know, that's, that's the case. I understand it. And, you know, let's roll. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. That's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline.
All right, let's get to our next one here from Terry Kelly. He said, I wanted to get your thoughts on Cam Hayward as a potential Hall of Famer. In last night's podcast, Robert, you mentioned Andrew Whitworth having a case as a four-time Pro Bowler and two-time All-Pro. Cam is also a four-time Pro Bowler and two-time All-Pro, and he's making a strong case for another All-Pro season. He's tied for second among interior linemen with six and a half sacks, has 10 TFLs, and seven PBUs as a defensive tackle. I just feel like he's about as underappreciated as it gets for a two-time All-Pro. I'm thinking about the Warren Sapp tweet saying, who's 97 regarding his picture in a promo for an upcoming Sunday Night Football game a few weeks ago. But he's probably also the second greatest Steelers defensive lineman ever after Mean Joe Green. Just wondering your thoughts, especially yours, Mitch, as an offensive lineman having to play against him on what he needs to do to get consideration after his career. Even as a Steelers homer, I don't feel like he's quite there yet, but I feel like a third All-Pro selection can bump him up to being recognized as the second best defensive tackle of his era after Aaron Donald. It's a very comprehensive question that I sincerely appreciate. So I'm wondering, as someone who has played against him a bunch, what what was his standing just among other players? It just feels like he's a guy that players in the league might respect more than the general public does. Yeah, so early in my career, like the first year or two, I think they switched sides a little bit more. And so, you know, on any given play, depending on the formation, I think it was more of like a strong and weak side thing. Or at the time, they had Kiesel, and he played more over the left tackle, and Cam played more over the right tackle. So I had to go against him, and it wasn't very fun. You know, we talked about your, <laughs> you know, the all Justin Smith all stars that you know give you a long day at the work or a long day at work. Uh, he's on that list, and you know we definitely knew about it. <laughs> and then there was a point, you know, definitely by my third year where he flipped, and he played like predominantly over the left side. I think he's been there ever since. And so I was like, yes, like, this is awesome. <laughs> and, you know, you go into the game and you're prepared for him. And it's like, nope, he's playing the other side. And, you know, this is great for me. So that was a guy that I didn't want to face. He's super strong. He's really good. Um, he's tough to play against. And I have no shame saying I was very happy he moved to the other side. And, you know, I didn't have to block him every single play. You know, of course, they still had, you know, two it on my side. And, you know, when I was young, they had like Jason Worlds, who was a pretty good player. And then, um they got some other guys so you're always facing a, and then, a good guy <laughs> tj watt eventually <laughs> well yeah i mean luckily i was <laughs> out of there by the time he uh got to town i'd have to face him twice a year but yeah he he's a guy i didn't want to face um because he's a good player he's strong he brings it every single play in terms of the hall of fame stuff i mean it's hard to know i mean you think a guy like that would end up having a little bit of a boost just because of like the family name and, and the ties and so you know, maybe his you know Pro Bowls and All Pros aren't quite what you think of a Hall of Famer at least at this point, but you hope that you know I'm sure he's going to play a few more years. I think he just signed another extension. You know, he's almost getting more popular. You know, the last couple of years, and so I'd hope he's getting more of like the All Pros and the Pro Bowls that uh, you you need to get in the Hall of Fame. You kind of need those counting stats. So we'll see where it goes. Um, you know, he's been an awesome player for a really long time. You know. It's kind of been J.J. Watt and Aaron Donald in terms of what guys think about for kind of the gold standard of the D-line position. And, you know, he doesn't do it in that manner. He's just like brute force at all times and super strong and just like uh, demolishing guys. So I think he doesn't have the flash of, you know, kind of those top guys that we think about. But in terms of production and ability to do it, you know, he's up there. I think it's going to be tough for him just because of some of the other names, right? So if you look at the all-decade team at defensive tackle, the four guys are Geno Atkins, Fletcher Cox, Aaron Donald, and Dominican Sue. 
Geno Atkins' numbers are wild. I mean, he had, he was getting eight, nine sacks a year as a defensive tackle for a while. I mean, he's somebody that at his peak was crazy dominant. I mean, I remember that 2012 season, he had 12 and a half sacks, but it's not like it was a flash in the pan for Geno Atkins. I mean, you look at some of these other years, 11 in 2015, 9 in 2016, 9 in 2017, 10 in 2018. Geno Atkins has 75 and a half sacks in his career. So it's not like he was a one or two year blip. Okay? I mean, I know then, that. We face him twice a year. So like, yeah, he's, he's really we good. Uh, he's fantastic, but it's when you look at it, it's like, all right, that body of work is pretty impressive. So Cam Hayward was drafted in that 2011 draft. Fletcher Cox was drafted in 2012. So they came in essentially at the exact same time. I think you can make an argument that at his peak, Fletcher Cox was probably a little bit more dominant than Cam Hayward was. But over the course of their career, it's probably pretty close. Who do you think has had a more impressive career, Indomitian Sue or Cam Hayward? Yeah, see, that's a tough one. I mean, I'd probably lean Hayward just because I faced him more often. And whenever, I mean, you face Sue, you know, the past few years especially, he's been more of, you know, a power guy, and we all know how strong he is. But, like, I would say Hayward's, you know, the strongest defensive lineman and has been for a while. You know, Sue's right there, but Hayward seems to be um, a little more, I don't know if reliable is the right term, but he kind of brings it more often. Um, You know, and Sue's bounced around a little bit, which doesn't necessarily help when you're, you know, thinking of a guy he also came in with like ridiculous expectations and so yes you know it doesn't help that he had like the most dominant defense line season of all time in college and you know came to the nfl with that pedigree but i think hayward for his consistency you know there wasn't you know the down year or the down couple years that it feels like sue has had um it's just a guy that like brings it every single time and you know doesn't have necessarily the the other incidents as well that offense linemen don't necessarily love so um i'd probably give it to hayward just because of the consistency and you know also the idea that like people don't know as much about him and so i do think it's a credit to him that uh he's in that conversation and you know kind of ekes it out that's i i lift those names off because i think you could make an argument that he is one of the four best interior linemen of the last 10 to 12 years and if he is a guy of that stature and somebody who compares to his peers that way probably does deserve to be in consideration for the hall of fame I mean, he was a part-time player for his first couple seasons. But if you look at it, since he started playing 16 games a year and starting 16 games a year, his sack totals as an interior defensive lineman in the years where he's played more than half the games. Seven and a half, seven, 12, eight, nine. He had four last year, six and a half this year. That's pretty damn good. (laughs) Like That is real production on top of the very real reputation that he has among players, among people who watch. So, I mean, I've always thought he was incredible and underrated. I absolutely think he deserves to be in that conversation. And hopefully he can stack three or four more years at this level. He's 32 and he's still playing really, really well. Yeah, he's going to have a few more and he's going to, you know, kind of have a longevity thing because he's a guy like you don't lose strength, you know, like he's always going to be super strong. So even as he gets towards his mid to late 30s, maybe he's more of a situational guy, but he's always going to have that power and that strength. Um, I think a credit to him and, you know, I got into it with some of the PFF guys about, you know, things that are measurable and not, you know, the past week. I don't know if this is measurable or not, but he plays in a system that prioritizes being physical and, you know, stopping the run. And so I almost wonder if he's almost like penalized in a way in terms of like the sack totals or the overall, you know, kind of counting stats, because that's what he did. He stopped the run. He's very physical. He's obviously able to still get sacks and, and rush the passer, but you know, one of the Watts hallmarks is that he could basically jump around blocks and he can do whatever he want and like freelance and still make the play and, and make the sacks and stuff. 
We obviously know Aaron Donald is just straight up field all the time, get to the quarterback. Fletcher Cox is, you know, for the most part played in, you know, the kind of the penetrating defensive line. Yeah. He's just a three tech, goes upfield. He can go inside if he wants. Hayward's played as a four tech. He's been head up on an offensive tackle. He's, you know, been double teamed a whole bunch. And, you know, for the most part, his main goal is to stop the run on first and second down and then get to the situations where he can pass rush. So I'm sure he, you know, gets penalized like i said a little bit in those counting stats because of that you know he's not just like hey go be three tech you know you'll get a bunch of one-on-ones against guards like rush or stop the run on the way to the passer like some of the other guys are are doing and um that will probably you know be to his detriment and in the long run when we're looking at his hall of fame stats all right let's get to our last voicemail here before we get out of here hello this is samuel i was wondering about whether or not you thought you could rank your top 10 wide receivers current in the NFL right now under the idea that they all had a quarterback like Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers. And then my second question is for Mitch, and that is if he was a O-line coach right now, who would he pick to be his starting five offensive linemen and two supplementary ones? Thank you. So let's put a pin in the receivers. I'd like to think about that because I always enjoy doing stuff like that. I wanted to ask you the offensive line question. Just put you on the spot. If you were building a starting offensive line right now in the NFL, what would it look like? So, I mean, I'm going to do the thing where we're assuming full health for everybody. Um, Yes. So Trent Williams, Quentin Nelson. I think I might take Jason Kelsey just because he's like so fun and you can do so many things with him that you can't with you know other centers <laughs> i mean jensen is a good choice but like i mean quentin nelson is already the asshole on that line so i don't know if you could even put those two together you might get too many flags um zach martin's you know pretty easy right guard and i think laying at right tackle um dude Who's the, that makes that sense line? to me Oh, my God. I mean, it's just absolutely insane. I like Kelsey because I agree you have the maulers elsewhere and having somebody with that move, those movement skills at center would be really fun. The amount of stuff you could do with them. Which is the closest of those, in your opinion? Because I feel like all of those are outside of center, which we just discussed. I think all those are kind of pretty clear cut right now, right? Yeah, I mean, so Quentin Nelson's been hurt the whole year, so like that's not really fair to him because he hasn't had yes. you know a year to his standards. But he's also basically been playing with injuries that I think most guys would you know sit out a month for. So you know what we've seen of him the first few years, you know he seemed to be pretty clearly the the top left guard. Honestly, I mean left tackle is always tough because healthy Tyron is healthy Tyron, you know. So yeah. that's a guy that you could say is a left tackle. But I think at this point Trent is like a little bit more versatile. And, you know, the stuff he does in space and pulling and, and all that we've seen. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Zach Martin's pretty easy. I think Lane's the pretty clear cut right tackle right now. So um, that was one that was surprisingly easier than I expected it to be. Yeah, that was you did that much faster in, in, in a way that I have no, no rebuttals, no notes. Yeah. <laughs> which I, I feel like I would have said like, oh, well, what about this guy? But I think that makes a lot of sense. It, who do you think it would be the number two spot at right tackle right now if you were stacking it up? I'd still probably go Ramchick because I don't know he's he's a heck of a player. I mean he's been injured a little bit this year, but in terms of you know the body of work over the last four or five years, um, he's a very well-rounded guy too. So you know he's a guy that has you know, quote unquote left tackle movement skills, but he's shown the ability to you know kind of function in any system, you know any kind of gap scheme, zone, out in space, true pass blocking. You know Werfs is 
doing an amazing job at right tackle for Tampa. Um, I'm going to be a hater and be, you know, a little bit skeptical of, you know, what he looks like without Tom Brady. You know, I still think it's all pro level and I still think it's great. Um, but having, you know, that, that quarterback to help you out and, uh, get rid of the ball and pocket movement is very static and it's predictable. And, you know, you don't have to block for more than eight yards for the most part. So, um, he'd be probably number three for me at this point. God, could you imagine having played with Tom Brady at any point in your career? Dude, I remember when I was younger, I would watch, I think it was Sebastian Vollmer was the right tackle at the time. And like, he would just like take one pass at, he'd like turn 90 degrees to the right. And he'd just like push the guy up the field. And I was like, <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. And then they like gave him an extension. And I was like, that's getting rewarded. Like this looks terrible. And like, he was a good player. You know, he did the job. He blocked his guy, you know, all that stuff. But I was like, man, that just looks like so easy. And then they got Marcus Cannon and like kind of the same thing. I mean, he was, I think a little bit better version of it, but like, it just, it, it seemed so obvious that like, it was easier to block for that guy and that, that it was the same for Peyton Manning as well. You know, like, especially when he got to Denver, I mean, they had guys playing, you know, right tackle that weren't very good players, but I remember watching like take two pass sets or take two, you know, kicks in your pass set, watch the guy run full speed into you and just like block him. And it was as easy as that because, you know, the rushers knew like they couldn't rush up the field because it just wouldn't matter. And so I just remember thinking like, the trust and the confidence that those tackles had like taking their pass set and just like settling and knowing that, that was the right spot and knowing that the guy had to like run through them to get to the quarterback. I was just like, man, I wish I could get that. <laughs> That's why I think you can make a case that Joe is like one of the best players the last like 25 years. The fact that he was a perennial all pro left tackle was the best left tackle in the league for like a decade. And he blocked for how many quarterbacks? 10? I blocked for 10 in four years. So he probably blocked for like 25. And every guy is different. How every guy sets up is different. How every guy moves is different. Every guy's clock is different. And the fact that he was consistently the best left tackle in the league with a different guy behind him is just something that not enough people talk about or appreciate. It's fucking wild. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> just like he All needs right. more accolades. So, you know, kudos to yeah, him for yeah, giving him yeah. more. <laughs> I'm pretty sure his trophy case is as full as it can get for an offensive lineman. But still, I still think it's something that we should talk about. All right. Always appreciate it, buddy. That was very fun. Always appreciate you guys sending in the questions. Sincerely, it's a blast to do this every single week. means a lot that you guys would take the time to send them in. So keep that coming. We're going to keep doing this throughout the year, throughout the playoffs. So no worries there. We'll be back tomorrow with Mike Sando. We're going to do a show about why there's been so much parity in the NFL this year, why it seems like there is a lack of elite teams, why it feels like anybody can beat anybody. I do not know the answer to that yet. That is something I'm going to try to dig into tomorrow with Mike. So please come back and check that out. In the meantime, please rate and review the podcast. We're getting toward the end of the year. If you have not left your review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, just just go throw one up there. If you like the show, let people know. It would mean a lot to me. Also, please subscribe to The Athletic. I have a story out today about the Arizona Cardinals defense. I went to Arizona. I spent some time with Vance Joseph, with Buda Baker, with some of their other coaches, just talking about how they've become the defense that they are. They lead the NFL in EPA per dropback, a defense that we don't really talk about a lot because we spent so much time talking about Kyler Murray. I learned a lot of stuff that I found fascinating, just 
the way that you build on defense, the way that you can grow over the course of three years. We talked about Jordan Hicks on this show. His story and how he fits into that defense is really interesting. So I encourage you guys to go check it out. Athletic.com slash football show. Again, it would mean a lot to me. Appreciate you guys listening. We'll be back tomorrow with Sando. We'll talk to you later. This was The Athletic Football Show.